Would you turn then to Matthew chapter 11? I want to read to you the first 15 verses of this passage. And we're taking up, uh, we're moving towards the end now of a series we've been looking at, looking at the theme of the Nazarites, these unique individuals in Scripture who had entered into a vow before God in which they offer their lives to him in these unique ways and through full, full-blooded devotion to God. And so we looked at the story of Samson, that great warrior in the book of Judges, and Samuel, the prophet to Israel, who anointed and appointed the early kings of Israel. And finally, we've been looking at John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus, the prophet who'd been announced even from before his birth to be a kind of waymaker who would make it possible for the arrival of King Jesus into the world to be received and accepted by others. And so his ministry was one of preparing people for Jesus, preaching. And he did so in the wilderness with a real fire and urgency and intensity that caught the attention of the entire nation. Many thousands would gather to listen to him and to be stirred and provoked by the things that he was saying. But now we've arrived at a moment in John the Baptist's ministry and towards the very end of his life, actually, where he has been imprisoned. He called out King Herod for his sordid relationship and marriage to his brother's wife and uh, called him out for this with a, you know, a fearless kind of provocation to that man who was in power. And John, having no power, was then imprisoned. And it ultimately ends with his beheading, of course. But at this moment, he's still alive. And this is where we pick up the account. It says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing, Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the Lord prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's say a brief prayer, shall we? Living God, as we um, open up this account and begin to listen to the words of Christ, I pray, Lord, that you will be speaking to people here. I pray you speak to us all. I pray that the ways in which you desire that we grow, 
Lord, in, in those ways we'll be responsive to you, eager and hungry to learn and to grow. I pray for those here, Lord, who don't know you, don't know what it means to follow you. May they see with some clarity, Lord, the goodness of being followers of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So over the last few months or so, we've been interested in looking at the stories of the Nazarites. And why is that? Well, mainly it's because I've wanted to um, provoke you by the, the, the unfolding of these stories about the goodness of living a life of devotion to God, that in a world in which it is possible to have split desires, split affections, and to perhaps live a life in which you, you feel the tension between your faith and other things that pull at you, God always wants, he wants all of you. And that in and of itself is, I think, really the essence of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's repeatedly in an ongoing way, coming to him and saying to the Lord, I want to give you everything. I want to be reshaped and reformed by you. I want to know your heart. I want to understand your ways. I want you to have all of me. And Christ, that's what he demands of us, and it's what he desires of us. And it is the heart of the Christian faith. And so if you are able to give yourself to him in that way, that's a successful life. It's what Christ has created you for, to be a worshiper. It's also what he saved you for, ransomed you for, redeemed you for, that you belong to him. But something else you notice in the stories that we've been looking, Samson, Samuel, John, is that in the midst of their devotion to God, God then uses them for his purposes, that he promotes them to positions of extraordinary influence and leadership in the life of the nation. And I want to be clear, it's not that they pursued that, for their own ends or ambitions. They pursue God. But God, in finding those who are, who are offering, offering themselves to him, will always elevate such people into positions of influence, that somehow they become more useful to him in his kingdom purposes. And I think this is no less true today than it was then. That as, as, as men and women offer themselves to God in devotion, God then equips and empowers you for service in the things that he is doing in this world. Now this brings us to this particular account. What is a very unique and special moment? Because here, you know, the world is full of leaders. The world is full of leaders that are generally not worthy of imitation because they may be there through their own ambition or through ego or narcissistic tendencies or through self-serving agenda or a kind of godless agenda. But here we have a man of God who is being commended and praised by who? By Jesus himself. And since it's my belief that being saved and born into the kingdom, our greatest priority and the focal point of the Christian life is, Lord, how can I live for your pleasure? It's the cry that, that runs through so many of the apostolic writings of the New Testament, the exhortation to live for the pleasure of God. If your desire is to live for the pleasure of God, and I think he freely gives it by his grace to those whose hearts are set on him, if that is your desire, then you need to tune into a moment where Christ is commending, praising, approving, expressing admiration for someone as he does here for John. This is where we gain insight. We begin to understand what is it that Christ wants of me? 
And this is what I want us to look at here. But alongside this, of course, is the reality that John not only meets with Christ's approval, but in the, in the providence and the plan of God, he also has a profound influence on others. And this is Christ's assumption, the things that he's teaching here. He's saying, what is it about John that appealed to all of you? Why was he such a magnetic leader? And so I think this is quite a unique moment because it allows us to ask this question in two ways. Like, one is to say, well, what is it that made John's life praiseworthy for Jesus? What is it that Jesus loved and admired about John? And at the same time, gained the admiration of the thousands, of the nation even, uh, so that he made an impression in his generation and left a mark. What is it that, that caused others to be attracted to him? And of course, there's a lot about him on the surface of things that you think would be unappealing. John did not have a winning personality. He was not a charismatic leader with a twinkling smile. He was not. He was not... Um, he wasn't a good-looking guy, I'm sure. He, was, he lived in the wilderness, for one thing, with unkempt hair and wearing shoddy clothes and rotting teeth, no doubt, from his diet of wild honey. There was a lot, I think, on the surface of him that might have been considered rather unpleasant. He was gruff, but people felt drawn to him in the power of the Spirit. He was a man who was different. I want you to pay careful attention to what it is that Jesus says about him as a provocation to us also. Let me show you three things that come through in this passage. We're particularly interested in this moment where Christ turns to the crowds and he asks them, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? The first thing that he draws attention to is John's conviction. He asks them, verse 7, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Anyone hearing that would have immediately answered, absolutely not. Absolutely not. On the, very, the very opposite was the case. But part of the reason why people were drawn to John in their thousands, why they would, they would camp out in the wilderness under the hot sun to listen to him, was because he was a man who had these profoundly deep convictions that emerged in the tone of voice and the message and the confrontation with which he approached um, people on spiritual matters, high and low. He, was no, he had no fear of man in that respect. I think wherever you see this in an individual, that's an appealing, it can be an appealing characteristic and be off-putting as well, of course. And it seems to me that this is a rare quality. That's what distinguished John from others, right, in his generation. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Isn't it the case that that most people at some level are more reed-like. We're kind of flapping about with various opinions and cultural trends and ideas and things that float around us, partly because of the way we inherently are wired, that most of us have within us at least some inclination towards people-pleasing, the need for acceptance, the need to belong, the need to, um, to gain some measure of, of uh, admiration or even popularity with others. And it seems to me that John was freed from that in terms of his inner, inner instincts because he already detached himself from other people and didn't live for the praise of man. And also, we, we tend, I think, in a, in a way that we're not always fully conscious or aware of, we tend to be moved by the winds of cultural change at a level that's not even fully conscious. It's subconscious. It's down deep in the subterranean parts of your, your mind and life. 
the assumptions that you, you, you absorb into your thinking. So that when we, we take snapshots back at generations that have gone before us, we tend to think that they were slightly crazy. 20 years ago, 40 years ago, certainly 60 years ago, they, there was, there was a, they, they were cr- cranky and strange in the things that they believed. And now we think, well, our generation is the enlightened generation, without realizing, of course, that the opinions that you've drunk in from your childhood has all been a form of indoctrination. We, we, we can't even see the cultural water in which we swim. But John emerges as an outlier, someone who was raised, as it were, or, or, or removed himself into the wilderness, a singular voice, a man who had these convictions that were formed outside of the cultural norms so that as he stepped back into society, he could see and call out the things that other people had just grown used to and grown to accept. This is what happens. We, we become numbed to the realities around us, which means you lose the edge, the conviction. The question then is, well, how do, you, how do such convictions grow? How, do, how does a person like John get formed so that they have this kind of firm and stable set of beliefs and convictions that are unshakable against the tides of culture or those internal desires to buckle and bend according to people's opinions around you? And I think it's important to recognize this is not just a personality trait thing. There are people, I think, who t- tend to be a little bit more confident about the things that they believe, perhaps even arrogant, But Christ would not have praised such a thing. Rather, what Christ is drawing attention to here is in a a beautiful and almost perfect form what he wants to be true of all of us. It's an example of a life that is built upon the word of God. Even just as we were singing, one of the songs we sang was referencing the teaching of Jesus in respect to this, what it means to build your life on his word. You remember this if you grew up in Sunday school. It's one of the classic stories, the parables of Jesus. He said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them would be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Jesus is setting up this contrast. He's saying, look, there's two ways to live. And the way that he is commending is the way in which your life, the very foundations of your life are are replaced with something more solid than the temporary shifting foundations of an ever-changing world, an ever-changing culture, an ever-changing society. Or worse still, your own machinations and ideas and imaginations. Saying if you want to have a firmness and stability in this life, your word, your life must be built on the truth that I alone can give you, the truth of my word. That's what he's saying. Which, of course, is not confined to what you think of as the red-letter teaching of Jesus in the Gospels. It means the entirety of the Scriptures that are breathed out by God, that are gifted to us by Him. And friends, I believe, and I think part of why I, I labor as I do here in this particular place, in this city, I believe that The great calling of the church in our day and age is to call people back to this. 
I think generations that went before us understood this better than we do. The importance of the centrality of the Word of God. The necessity of having firmly built convictions. And as a result, we're in many ways stronger. And I think if there's a vulnerability in the generation in which we live, it's here. It's that we, we, we approach we approach things through a different lens. We want, to, we want to weigh things in a way that we think is a little bit more smart, I suppose, and rational. Certainly not taking what God says as read. And God's voice echoes through the generations. My word remains forever. Listen to how Peter puts it in his letter. It says, all flesh is like grass. And all its glory like the flower of grass. It's the same image that Jesus used of the reeds blowing in the wind. Something temporary, something bendable. Says the grass withers and the flower falls. How temporary this particular cultural moment is. A generation later, your children will be judging you for your bigoted and outdated opinions. But then he adds, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You've seen the nature documentaries, haven't you, in which you see the sad images as the ice caps melt of polar bears stranded on single icebergs floating off into the ocean, unable to, to find land. In a way, that's, that's society in general, and that's your life, when your life is not moored to something that is unchanging something that is permanent, something that is fixed. And I believe that you will experience the dizzying confusion, disorientation of the Christian life insofar as your life isn't tethered to the Word of God. And more than that, you'll experience the whiplash of cultural change generation on generation, not even a generation, it's within every five, six, seven years that we see rapid change happening within culture. John wasn't like that because he was built upon the word of God. He reminds me of the Psalm 1 man. You remember Psalm 1, how he contrasts two ways to live? He says, the wicked are like chaff. In other words, their life is just blown around by every wind of change and opinion. He says, the man of God is like a tree planted by streams of righteousness. It puts its roots down into the streams, delighting in the law of God, bearing fruit in the season. God wants to make you solid. When, John hold, when Jesus holds John up as an example to us here, he's saying, he's saying to us all as a provocation, this is what I want my people to be. Full of conviction. I want you to notice something before I move on. Having conviction like this is not incompatible with experiencing doubt. This story is fascinating because when Jesus first emerged onto the scene, it was John's job as, as the prophet who went before him to point to Jesus and say, this is the man. He said on one occasion, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But you move forward a few weeks or months and here's John languishing in a prison cell and experiencing doubt. Maybe it's because of his own situation. Maybe it's because Jesus' ministry didn't exactly track along 
the lines that maybe John anticipated it would. And so he comes to him, he sends disciples to him, at least with the question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? That's how our story opened. I want to just encourage you, friend. Being a person of conviction doesn't mean that you can't experience doubts. John himself experiences them. And does Jesus criticize him for it? Absolutely not. John knew what to do with the doubts when he went through them. He brings them back to Christ. Christ dignifies him with an answer. I want to say to you, friend, if you're someone whose faith has been afflicted by doubt and the wavering sort of almost moment by moment um, experience of certainty then uncertainty, of conviction followed by, by, by questioning, the Lord Jesus can make you stronger in your faith when you bring your questions to him and to his word. John was a man of conviction. Let me show you a second thing here. He was also a man of an extraordinary sacrificial commitment. And this comes through in the second question Jesus asked in verse 8. He says, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Well, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Now, here again, Jesus is showing a negative. He's showing what John is not. John is not a lover of comfort. He'd renounced it, in fact. He had, at some point in his formative years, maybe in his teens, perhaps his parents had passed away. I remember they were old. But at some point in his formative years, he had removed himself from normal society to go and live in the wilderness where he could learn more about God and experience God's presence and power and listen to his voice. And so you find him in the wilderness wearing camel's hair garments and eating a a diet of locusts and wild honey. He was not a lover of comfort. And there's something in that that I think resonates with the mind and the mindset of Christ and that Christ draws attention to. You see, elsewhere in Jesus' teaching, Jesus warns about the danger of comfort as a kind of soporific to the soul. That comfort has a kind of smothering effect. It can at least have a smothering effect on spiritual urgency and zeal. It can numb you into the false sense of security that life is all fine and okay and there's not much to do. I think this is partly why Jesus used such strong words in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter six, six, when he begins to speak um, these woes. Do you remember this? He said, having said uh, some blessings, he then says, woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall always be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. It wasn't that Jesus was necessarily against wealth or against being satiated or against enjoyment in life. He could experience all these things and does enjoy and participate in all these things. But he's saying here there's a spiritual rule. That when your life knows nothing except comfort, it's very rare to find someone who lives for anything bigger than that. My wife and I, a few years ago, a couple of years ago, we had a, a rare opportunity to take a weekend away. We left the children with grandparents and we headed off into the, the Cotswolds and stayed in a, um, a bed and breakfast there. And on the Sunday morning, um, instead of going to church, don't judge me, uh, <laughs> we went to this massive garden center in, in the Cotswolds. And uh, it was a beautiful place, there's no doubt. 
But I was kind of shocked at the same time because, you know, one of the questions I often think about and meditate on as a pastor is, why are people leaving churches? Why is England disinterested in church? And that morning I understood why. Because it seemed that the entirety of the population of the Cotswolds had descended on the garden center. Because it is a beautiful and quaint and comforting environment. You walk down rows of perfectly pruned bushes and plants. You listen to the tinkling fountains. You can enjoy a cake and a cup of coffee. Of course, that's what drew us there that morning. But then I found my heart also rebelling and resisting against what I was experiencing as I began to dawn on me. We're a nation that worships comfort. There are other things we worship, of course, but if there's any reason why why British people have no, no sense of urgency to get right with God and to know him. It's because life is so comfortable. And the more you pad and feather your nest and you know, have your perfectly pruned garden and your, 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 your possessions and your comforts in life, well, the, less, the less you feel the need for God. And there was something about John, there was a wildness in him, I think that people were drawn to him because he, he was not comfortable. He was not a lover of comfort. He was not soft. The word Jesus uses here when he says, you know, a man dressed in soft clothing, it, means, it can also mean effeminate. I think he's taking a little bit of a side dig at the very people who would imprison John, and particularly Herod himself, and all of his lavish opulence and comfort in the palace, comparing him with John. And there's a lesson in here, isn't there, that there was something about John's formative experiences that prepared him for the message and the leadership that God gave him. It's very difficult to be a leader of any worth or merit unless you pass through hardship. Unless you've experienced sacrifice. Unless you've been exposed to difficulty or danger. Think of you were to head out on a great expedition. In my teen years, I had the, the wonderful opportunity of spending some time trekking in Nepal. Of course, Nepal is famous for being right there in the range of the Himalayas. And if you want to go up one of the great mountains there, summit one of the great peaks, you choose very carefully the guide who's going to lead you on that expedition. You're not looking for someone with soft hands and a plump belly. You're looking for someone who is wizened and hardened through years of experience and even the hardship of the mountaintops that enables them to, to navigate well and wisely and carefully in the face of all kinds of dangers. And if that's true in that metaphorical sense, it's true also in the spiritual sense. And John, Jesus is He's, he's looking at this about John. John. John isn't a man who's just surrounded by comfort or who has not experienced hardship in life. He's not someone who is necessarily surrounded by privilege. He had spiritual privileges, no doubt, but he didn't have status, he didn't have wealth, he didn't have power. What he had instead was a rugged, passionate, devoted, sacrificial commitment to God that meant he burnt with the kind of fire that drew other people to him. He was tough. 
Christ himself was like this, by the way. I know we tend to think about Jesus in his own description of being gentle and lowly, and there was a gentleness to Christ, no doubt. But Jesus also knew what it was like to suffer and to be hungry. He was homeless, after all. He said about himself, foxes of holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And what does that do? You know, it developed this kind of toughness. And I'm not talking about the kind of fake machismo, like guys on YouTube who show off their samurai swords and that kind of stuff. I'm talking about, you know, the moral courage that comes through real hardships in life. And the fact that he doesn't flinch, in a sense, when he's arrested and he is able to face execution, ultimately. There's something so deeply admirable about this. And, friends, not just as an outlier, but but as a pattern for the Christian life. Does God want to allow you to experience hardships and difficulties and tests and trials in order to toughen you up and develop that kind of sacrificial commitment to his way and his word? Absolutely, without hesitation, the answer is yes, he does. I don't mean here... You know, there was John in his camel hair garment. I'm not saying that you have to, like, reduce the thread count on your duvet cover or something like this, switch to raw wool. But what I'm talking about here is that there is, there is a call. There come moments in the, in the Christian life when there must be a willingness to make genuine, real, even painful sacrifices of temporary goods and temporary pleasures, comforts, and securities in order to gain something eternal. You can't read the teaching of Jesus and not see that that is a strong theme. If you think that you can be a follower of Christ and not make those kinds of choices, you're mistaken, my friend. For some of you, that will mean a willingness to be exposed to financial risk, to abandon that kind of security in order to say yes to Christ. Perhaps there may be professional risk in that following Christ can and increasingly will in the, in the days and years to come mean embracing the possibility of being a pariah. It may mean material lack. John lived a simple life. I don't think that that is the scriptural teaching for all Christ followers, but I do think that Christ wants it for some. It may mean even a risk to your life and to your health. And I'll just read you a few different verses just to substantiate what I'm saying. Listen to what Paul says to the believers, one of the churches that he'd founded in Acts chapter 14. And this is just after Paul had been stoned. And he goes to them and he says to them, He went to them and preached, and it says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans 8. You remember the verse where Paul says that the Spirit himself, God's Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we're, that we're children of God. What a precious verse that is, and we read it often. But do you know how it goes on? It says, and if children, then heirs. You're an heir in the kingdom. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, he writes, we suffer with him 
in order that we might also be glorified with him. In many respects, friends, as much as there are extraordinary privileges in being a follower of Jesus, it is also a path that Christ himself says is narrow and hard. And this is what Paul's pointing at here. John was a forerunner in that respect. He was willing to embrace hardship and difficulty in the pathway of suffering as an expression of his devotion to God. And so when God calls you into things that you find confusing, you find difficult, disturbing, when you're exposed to hardships that you didn't anticipate, I want you to understand, friend, that it is in those moments that God is growing you. Listen to how James puts it in James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I think I could rephrase that and say, look, without passing through tests and trials, you cannot mature as a believer. You can't. And this is something Jesus is commenting on in John's life. Not only did he have this, um, this extraordinary conviction that made him different from others, he also was a man whose life and lifestyle demonstrated the commitment to Christ and to God. Here's the last thing. Jesus also then points to John's calling. He asks the final question. He says in verse 9, What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who prepare your way before you. Jesus is putting his finger on the essence of why people were drawn to John the Baptist. It was his divine calling to be the mouthpiece, a prophet of God. In some ways, John, John occupied that role in a non-repeatable, unique once in the history of the world way, which is what Jesus is saying here. He was the messenger who went before Christ. But think about what it was that drew people to John. What it was that made him able to be a prophet of God and why people were sort of magnetically drawn to listen to what he had to say. And the answer, of course, is because of his closeness to God. John is a man who, if I can use the images of Scripture, he's a man who'd been up the mountain. Remember Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can dwell in the holy place? John was someone who had dedicated his life to drawing near to God and being in the, up the mountain. He was someone, to use a different image of Scripture, who'd drawn near the fire. You know, as Moses does when he sees the burning bush, or the book of Hebrews describes God as a consuming fire. John had sought to draw near to the fire. He's someone who'd heard the whisper. You remember Elijah, how John is a, a, a prophet in the pattern of Elijah. We're told, well, Elijah met God in a whisper. He met God in an extraordinary moment of confrontation and encounter when he heard the whisper of God's voice, and it was a pivotal moment in his life. John was like that. And what is it, what happens when you meet a person like that? In some ways, there's something quite 
a little unsettling about such people, I think. Because of the difference it makes in their life. They've experienced awe that's left them forever changed. Being near God fashions and forms a pure heart. Where there's less vulnerability to the temptations and the pleasures of this world because God is everything. Being near to God gives clear sight about what is important in life. Readdresses those priorities and the reasons for living. All these things that happened in John's life to an extraordinary degree. In other words, being near to God, being close to God, changed John. And people are drawn to him as a result. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, because I think a lot of us would look at this and think, well, that was John. And I'm me. And I know all the things I struggle with. The sins that plague me. The busyness and and exhaustion of my week. The the longings I have for life. What does Jesus say? Having just commended John in these extraordinary ways, he then says this, final commendation. He says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet... The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. If John was marked for these extraordinary convictions, this amazing commitment to his calling and the calling itself to be a prophet, I think Christ is saying to us that what was true of John as an individual, a unique individual before the coming of Christ, is to be true of all my people from here on. You have greater reason than John did to have conviction because you live the other side of the resurrection. The doubts that that plagued John's mind as he sat in in that prison cell wondering, is Jesus really the one? Well, you don't need to have those doubts in that same debilitating way because you live the other side of the resurrection of the Christ. No event in history as significant and important as that. If John had conviction, how much more are we called to live with conviction? If John was willing to commit himself in devotion to God and experience the hardship necessary, the pathway that God had laid out for him, well, friend, how much more are you and I called into the pathway of the cross? Jesus has invited you to die to yourself that you might live for him. Life is on the other side of that, that willingness to offer yourself to him without reservation and without hesitation. And friend, if John was, was called to be a prophet, do you know that all God's people are in a sense prophets? We bear witness to a reality that has changed everything for us and for the world. (coughs) The essence of what I've been wanting to provoke in you, friends, in this whole series is this, that, that these strange and bizarre individuals strike you as somewhat eccentric. This is the new normal for God's people. 
If you're trying to wed together your Christian life with something that seems to you to be acceptable, something that wins you favor and admiration from a world that actually is hostile to Christ, friend, that's a futile effort. Jesus is inviting you. I want, I want you and I want you entirely. And as you are offering your life to me, see what I will do in you and see what I will do through you. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you've been wandering around in a sense in life, uncertain of what your life is about. One of the great joys of encountering the Lord Jesus Christ, beside the fact that you experience his grace, his forgiveness, his cleansing power, the way he removes sin and shame from your life, is also the fact that then he gives within you his purpose. That in losing yourself in him in devotion, you actually find life. You find destiny. You find meaning. You find purpose that you did not know was possible. So all the kind of swirling anxieties and uncertainties and even the sense of dread that may have plagued you as you lie on your bed at night contemplating the bigger realities of life, unable to, to shut off your mind, the Lord Jesus Christ wants to draw near to you in that and tell you your search is for him. Give yourself to him. So many of us as Christians, I think, live lives that sometimes are forgetful of these things. Shall we bow our heads and pray? Let's take a moment or two just to ask for God's grace and his power and his spirit to continue to bring change within us. Lord, we're aware, Lord, that we live lives that are so often um, just more aware of present realities than eternal ones. More consumed with anxieties and the temporary concerns of this world than with the greater things that you are doing. They sink us at moments, Lord, like Peter walking on the water, gulping in <laughs> gulps of water, unable to fix his eyes on you. Sometimes that's our experience of life, Lord, and we lose sight of you. Lord, I want to ask that your Holy Spirit will do that kind of gentle work in which you summon us and draw us to a life of abandon. A life of genuine, explicit faith. We want to fix at the center of it all that certain conviction that Christ, you're worth it. You're the only Lord. Christ who died for our sin. Christ who was raised to give us life. May your presence and your Lordship loom over us, staking your claim on every dimension of our lives, drawing us into 
deeper intimacy and fellowship with you and the ability to live our lives for you. Lord, we know you in the sweet, intimate place of prayer, in the hidden, quiet, unseen moments. Pray, Lord, you begin to open ears and hearts to hear your voice as we study your word. Pray, Lord, that where some folk have been vacillating and on the fence with questions and doubts about decisions in life, whether to go your way or not, help us to be free of the fears that hold us back. I pray, Lord, that even in the small decisions now, we choose you, Jesus. There'll be a kind of compound effect in the years to come. As yes gives way to yes, gives way to yes. And you make of us something, Lord, that can change the world, as John the Baptist did. How much better that is, Lord, than living a, a life in the middle of the road, trying to live between two worlds, uncertain which to embrace. I want you, Lord. I pray that you'll give us the spirit of repentance. Where there's sin that is an offense to your heart. Where there's an unwillingness, Lord, to let go of idols. Slay them, we pray. we take on our mouths and in our lips, Lord, the confession, Jesus, you are better and you're worth it. You're better. We want our lives to be a visible sermon to the goodness, the all-sufficiency, the satisfaction of who you are. Jesus, you are better. We thank you, Lord, that if John saw that, even in the hazy, uncertain way in which he saw it, and it could call for everything from him, how much more, Lord, can we give you our all? Knowing what you have done, knowing what you have accomplished for us. Jesus, you are better.